You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. You may have read this short little book titled The Tyranny of the Urgent. How many of you have read that at one point in your life? Not many of you. You should check that out. If you've never read it, you don't know it's a small book that packs this really powerful message. And the message is basically this. Don't let the urgent take the place of the important in your life. Don't let the urgent take the place of the important in your life. It is more expedient to focus on important matters than it is to be distracted by things that scream for your immediate attention. You know, over the last few years, we have seen God working in this church. We have seen the faithfulness of our Lord as Northeast continues to grow, not just in numeric width, but also in spiritual depth. But we have to be cautious. We have to be alert to the reality that we have a spiritual enemy who still wages war against us. He's going to try to distract us and take us away from the important things. And focus on the mundane. He will tempt us. He will lie to us. He will try to deceive us in order to destroy the work that God is doing here. And we have to be mindful of that. Well, in the letter of 1 Peter is the Apostle Peter's version, if you will, of the tyranny of the urgent. He writes about these important things that Christians need to be involved in and focused on in order to preserve and Hang in there during opposition. In fact, he's saying you need to focus on these things because some of you are going to face severe persecution. He writes so that Christians, both in the first century and down through the ages, even to today, would be prepared in order to face these challenges. And that's what this sermon series here we go is all about. It's a series that examines these, fi- these vital topics so that we're prepared to face the spiritual opposition challenges and challenges and faithfully, faithfully stand for Christ. So I want us to just refresh ourselves with regard to the background of this, of this study. Uh, we started it last fall. We took a break here over Christmas and the beginning of the new year, and now we're, we're back at 1 Peter And uh, some of you remember, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's introducing himself at the top of this letter to those who are reading it, so they know it's coming from him. And then he says, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout. And he's talking specifically to some people he refers to as exiles. This means he sees them, or he's defining them, as resident aliens, or some might call them sojourners. In chapter 2 of this letter, he refers to them as strangers and pilgrims. The idea is that the people that he's writing to are different. And they're different in so much a way that they seem as though they're from a completely different country. And the reason for this difference is that these people were citizens of heaven because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul explains a little more clarity to this 
In Philippians, the third chapter, verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter knows that Christians aren't permanent residents of planet Earth. We're just visiting here. So, as we resume this study in Peter's letter, we're going to start with 1 Peter, the third chapter, starting in verse 18. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to flip over there or draw it up on your phone or tablet. <clears throat> it's important to remember that Peter is writing to a specific demographic of people as well. He's focused on a place called Northern Asia Minor. And as he writes to them, he's writing to prepare this group of people for the difficulties that they were facing or that they were about to face. Every Christian strives to be like Jesus, or at least they should. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. When you live like Jesus, you will face challenges that the rest of the world doesn't face. You may even face persecutions. And Peter wrote this letter to encourage the early Christians as well as us to keep living like Jesus. Don't ever quit. Now, when Peter wrote this section of this letter, I doubt that he had any idea that later in history it would be classified as one of the most difficult uh, passages or portions of Scripture to interpret. In fact, over the entire New Testament, this is one of the toughest sections. I was so excited to learn that when I started studying. Nobody loves conflict more than I do, and that's sarcasm for those of you that don't recognize it. We may not be able to solve all the problems found in this section of Scripture, but we do want to get the practical help that Peter is writing to give as an encouragement to Christians during some very difficult days. And so in this section, what we find initially is that Peter is dialing in his focus on the example of Jesus. The reason is, if we understand the example that Jesus set for us, we'll be better able to face the challenges in life. We'll be better able to live out the will of God through our lives, and we will glorify Christ in the process. So the first thing we want to do is examine the example of Jesus. And Peter gives it to us from his perspective. Remember, Peter spent three and a half years as a disciple learning under Jesus. And then after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he saw him with his own eyes. So Peter has a very unique perspective, maybe more so than anyone else at that time in history. Peter presents Jesus as this perfect example of one who suffered unjustly and yet still obeyed God. And that that character quality of Jesus is a reason enough to examine the example that he gives to us. So, I want to share with you some, what I call, key facets of Jesus' example that we get from Peter's experience with Jesus. The first is, he focuses on Jesus' death. We see in verse 17, the previous verse, that Peter wrote about suffering for doing good rather than doing evil. And then he gave the example of Jesus in verse 18. Look what he says in verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus was the righteous one, and yet he was treated unjustly. And do you know why? He was treated unjustly 
so that he might die for sinners. You see, the Old Testament law, God had set up, it required the shedding of innocent blood, of a flawless sacrifice in order to atone for sins or to cover an individual's or a group of people's sins. The Old Testament law required this shedding of blood. And so animals oftentimes were used as the regular sacrifices for such sins. But on the cross, Peter points out, Jesus became that sacrifice. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in the ninth chapter, he kind of extrapolates this idea out even further. He says, but he, was, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus was sinless, and he died for sinners to bring them to God. He took our place on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. Now, there's an interesting phrase that Peter uses in verse 18, and it's the phrase, to bring you to God. He uses it, and it's a technical term that means to gain an audience in court. Peter's explaining that the work of Jesus on the cross has given us access into the presence of God. This wasn't always the case. We can come boldly into his presence now because Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, when he actually gave up the spirit, the curtain in the temple of God was torn in two. Now, why is that important? Well, you had two sections of the temple of God for the, in the Old Testament temple. You had this holy place, which is where the uh, priests of, uh, of the temple would actually do their business each day. And then you had this really thick curtain, almost like a carpet, that separated the holy place from a place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And once a year, the high priest, the highest ranking of all the priests, one time a year, he would make an entrance into the holy place, the Holy of Holies. And he would do that to represent the people of God before the presence of God. It was understood that God would descend down on top of the ark and the people would be interceded on behalf of the high priest. But when the veil was torn, when the curtain was torn, it symbolized now that all people can approach God. They don't need the high priest anymore because they have a high priest in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, there's a second facet of Peter's uh, example of his analysis of this example of Jesus that he had. And that is what I call Jesus' victory speech. We read about this in verses 19 and 20. It's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting event. Look what he says. He says, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently In the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 
On the cross, Jesus suffered and died. It was there that his body was put to death and his spirit died when he took on the sins of the world. But later we read that his spirit was made alive again and he yielded it to the Father. But what Peter is saying is is unique in this sense. That according to this testimony of the apostle, sometime between Jesus' death and his resurrection, Jesus made this special proclamation to a group he called the imprisoned spirits. And this is part of what complicates this section of Scripture. Because a lot of people don't know who these people are. It raises two very important questions. Who are these imprisoned spirits, and what was the proclamation that Jesus made to them? In the New Testament, this word that's translated spirit, or spirits here, is used to describe angels or demons. It's never used to describe human beings or the souls of those who have died. Based on the text that that we're studying here, these spirits were most likely fallen angels who had somehow been related to that period of time before the flood, which was an unbelievably wicked time. And most likely they had something to do with the wickedness during that time. Peter didn't tell us what Jesus' proclamation was to these imprisoned spirits. But it couldn't have been a message of redemption, as some people believe, since angels cannot be saved. It was probably a declaration of victory over Satan and his armies. Paul talked about a similar Uh, A similar moment in Colossians, the second chapter, verse 15, he says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We don't know exactly, but it sounds like Jesus gave the victory speech to the enemies of God, pointing to the cross, saying, That right there, is why you lose the cross. I don't know that Jesus is spiking the football here. I don't know that he's doing some end zone dance. I think that would, that would lessen him or demean him in some way. But he is definitely making it clear to the imprisoned saints that he is the victor and they are not. There's a third facet of this illustration that Peter gives us and that is Jesus' rec- resurrection, his resurrection. In 1 Peter 3, 21, we read, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, he emphasizes the resurrection, but he starts with a discussion about baptism. Peter makes this analogy from verse uh, 20 up to verse 21 between Noah and his family being saved through the waters of the flood and the Christians being saved through the waters of baptism. And he uses this phrase that baptism that now saves you also. And that's a troubling phrase to a lot of theologians. Some are concerned that Peter's affirmation that baptism saves you might be taken to imply that there's some kind of magic in baptism. Peter gives us two points 
of clarification here with regard to baptism to give us a little more clarity. The first is, he says, baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body. You know, the Old Testament, you had to, uh, before you, you approached the, the temple or the altar, you had to have the ceremonial washing, which was to cleanse you of, your, uh, of, all, your, uh, of all the dirt and everything on your body. Some might make this parallel between the two, and there is some similarity, but Peter makes it very clear. This purpose of baptism is not to wash the dirt off of your body. And it's unlikely that those who he was writing to would have thought of Christian baptism as that taking a shower, taking a bath. There's a second point of clarification that he makes here about baptism, and that is that baptism doesn't bring salvation by itself. It's combined with the right inward attitude, and it's linked, Peter says, with the resurrection of Jesus. Let me read verse 21 one more time. He said, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying in that phrase, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God, He's saying that in baptism, one makes this pledge to God to maintain a good conscience toward him, to live a life faithful in service to him. The word pledge is an interesting word that he uses. It's actually a legal word in the Greek language used when a person was signing a contract. That person would be asked, do you pledge to obey and fulfill the terms of this contract? That's what that word encompassed. And his answer had to be, yes, I do, or he would not be allowed to sign the contract. He had to be strongly in affirmation of that pledge. And when converts were brought and prepared for baptism, they would be asked if they intended to obey God and serve him and make a complete break from their sinful past. And if they had reservations in their heart or deliberately lied... They would not have a good conscience toward God. And if they faced persecution and they didn't have that kind of conscience toward God, they'd most likely deny him. Let me read verse 21 one more time. He said, And this water symbolizes that now, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which explains the power behind baptism, the resurrection. It is the power of Jesus' resurrection that gives baptism its power. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in Romans 6, verse 3 and following. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism connects a person to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And we must never minimize the importance of baptism and its connection to the resurrection of our Lord. Well, there's a fourth facet, fourth facet of Peter's analysis of the example that Jesus gave, and that is Jesus' ascension. We read about it in verse 22. And he says this, Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. He's talking about Jesus. With angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Forty days after the resurrection of Jesus, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And he is preparing a place for his people and will one day come back to receive them to himself. But there's a key point that Peter wanted to emphasize, and that was that Jesus has complete victory over all the angels and authorities and powers. It's again, it's a reference to these fallen angels, the Satan's armies. And he wants us to know that he has authority over all of them. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on verse 22, says, As Christians, we do not fight for victory, but from victory. That our Lord Jesus Christ won for us in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Because of Jesus, the war is over. Oh, we're in the mopping up phase, and we still have to maintain our sense of faithfulness in this. But we must live from the vantage point of the position as victors. Because that's what Jesus made us at the cross once we accepted him as our Lord and Savior. So just let me recap real quickly here. You have the first facet of this example was the death of Jesus, which emphasizes the sacrifice that was necessary for our salvation. And then we have this victory speech of Jesus declaring victory over the enemies of God. And then you have the resurrection, which is the power over death. And you and I share in that when we're baptized into Christ And then we have the ascension. Now Jesus is ruling in heaven, preparing a place for us, and you and I were living as victors. And that's Peter's view. That's the Jesus that he knew, the example that Jesus set. Let me ask this question. What should we apply to our lives from the example of Jesus? From what Peter has told us, what can be our takeaway? Let me give you five applications as we close this talk. The first is this. Christians should expect to encounter opposition. You should expect that. As the coming of Jesus gets closer and closer, our faithfulness and our good works will incite anger and attacks from godless people. Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth, and yet they crucified him as a common criminal. If the one sinless person was treated so cruelly, what right do we, who are imperfect, have of escaping persecution? We must be prepared to suffer for doing the right things when we're following Jesus. There's a second application that we can can apply to our lives from the example of Jesus, and that is that Christians must serve God by faith and not trust in results only. Peter mentions Noah in this text, albeit very briefly, but he uses him as an illustration. You probably know that Noah served God 
faithfully as an Old Testament patriarch. And he kept only, but he kept only himself and seven members of his family from dying in the great flood. Noah preached for 120 years, and the only converts were his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And yet God honored Noah for his faithfulness. It's not always the numeric results that you see that God is interested in. In this case, he was looking at Noah's faithfulness. Jesus himself looked like a total failure when he died on the cross to many people around him, even some of his closest followers. Yet his death was a supreme victory. We know that now. But in that moment, it looked like, it looked like failure. God's purposes today may seem at times to be failing, but don't lose heart. He will accomplish his mission in this world. Let's let him do that through us. There's a third application that we need to uh, apply to our lives from the example of Jesus, and that is that we can be encouraged because we've identified with Jesus' victory. We should live from that. The opposition of the Christian is energized by Satan and his minions, but remember, Christ has already defeated these principalities and powers of darkness. Matthew 28 reminds us that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, we can go forward with confidence because we're united with him. We're part of his family. And then the fourth application is baptism is important. Baptism identifies us with Jesus and gives witness that we have broken with our old lifestyle. We will, by his help, live a new life. Baptism unites us with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it is a pledge to God that we will obey him. If we use Peter's terminology, we are agreeing to the terms of the contract. And when we're asked, we say, yes, I will keep the contract. To take baptism any lighter than it should be is to sin against the Lord. The fifth application and final one, is Jesus is our Savior, and the lost world needs to hear the gospel. Some people try to use this complex passage of Scripture to prove that there is a second chance for salvation after death. The interpretation, though, of the terms that Peter uses of him for imprisoned spirits seems to prove that these were not human souls who had died earlier, but these instead were fallen angels. And the proclamation that Jesus made is more of a victory speech, claiming victory over the emissaries of the, of the devil rather than an evangelistic sermon. Thus, there is not a second chance for salvation after death. In fact, as I read earlier from Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 27 says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, Scripture is crystal clear that death ends the opportunity for salvation. This is why the church needs to be serious about sharing God's grace and supporting grace-driven mission work all around the world. People are dying who have never heard of the good news of salvation. And Peter's making it 
pretty clear here that difficult days will give us multiple opportunities to share God's love and his forgiveness. The question is, will we take advantage of that? Well, I want to close this uh, message with um, a reference from a, a classic book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox, John Fox picks up from the start of the church all the way through history talking about people who gave their lives for the gospel and the persecutions that they faced. And he records in his book the first persecution that was, that was an intentional wave of attack towards the church started by the Roman Empire Nero in approximately A.D. 64, which ironically was around the same time that Peter wrote this letter that we're studying. Nero's rage against Christians was so fierce that one of the early church fathers, Eusebius, records these words. A man might then see cities full of men's bodies, the old lying together with the young, in the open streets. What was he talking about? He was talking about the vast number of people who died because of their faith. Many Christians in those days thought that Nero was the Antichrist because of his cruelty and the abominations that he had committed against Christians. In fact, even the Apostle Paul was condemned during Nero's persecution. He was condemned to death. Jerome, another one of the early church fathers, records that during this persecution, the apostle Peter himself was crucified. But he was crucified upside down at his own request, saying that he was not worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord was crucified. The reason I share that with you is you have to understand, Peter wasn't writing this letter just to espouse a bunch of theory and and spiritual thought that he had. He wanted us to understand. You need to know Jesus. You need to understand his life and what he stood for because that is an example that will prepare us for the things that we will face. Some of them were facing them the moment that they were reading this letter. And Peter makes the case that Jesus' life is a life worth living for. But if you look at the life of Peter, you'll realize that the example of Jesus and living a life after that example was also a life worth dying for. So what about us? Highly unlikely, at least at this moment in time, that any of us will have to pay with our lives. But we will face opposition. Are you ready to stand as a victor, to show love and kindness, not to stand with hate and disregard for other people, even when they unjustly assault you? Are you ready to be people of grace? People who administer the love of Jesus, even when others are harsh to them? Peter's saying, following the example of Jesus. It's worth it. And it'll change the world. Are you with me? Let's change the world together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you 
for the reminder of just how important your son is to my daily life. It's easy, God, I think, for some of us to have walked with you for a long, long time to uh, get casual about you. And yet, God, we realize today you are more important than we could ever imagine. Not just in the moment of our salvation, that certainly is vitally important, but in every minute that follows, your example and your teaching and your words speak volumes to us of how we should live and the difference we can make in the world around us. And God, we pray that you will do just that. Help us to adhere to the example of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for Jesus. God, I know that there are some who walked in here today and they've been beat up. Somebody has been hurtful to them. Maybe it's a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. Maybe it's one of their children. Maybe it's a parent. They just hammered on them because they're trying to follow you and they're trying to live a life that is going to shine light and be salt in this world. God, I pray that you would give them a renewed and refreshed spirit today. May they encounter you in a way that reminds them that they need to continue to fight the good fight, continue to run this race with you. Lord, I pray for those that may have never taken that step of faith, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would step in to say, hey, I I need my sins forgiven. I have tried everything this world has to offer, and it doesn't bring satisfaction. And they've heard enough to know that Jesus is well worth taking the risk, that he loves them unconditionally, and he'll wash their sins away and give them the hope of all eternity. God, I pray that today would be the day for them. Lord, help us to find strength and faith to stand against the opposition and the persecution that comes our way through the example of your son. Lord, help us to accomplish your mission you called us to do, to here to do, to make disciples. God, give us that strength. Expand our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing and worship. And uh, if you have any decision on your heart you'd like to talk with someone about, I'm going to be down here the remainder of the service. I'll be here after the service. I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. You want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Whatever the case, I, uh, I would love to spend a little bit of time visiting with you. Let's stand together and worship him.